Hello and welcome to Truth and Learning. I'm Matt Richter and I'm here with, hey, hey Will, um, who are we here with? <laughs> We're here with me <laughs> and Lori Niles Hoffman and Steve Foreman. That's great. That's great. Thanks, Will. Uh, so we have a fascinating topic today and we are only going to do one topic today because it is so uh, important, we think, and more uh, the response we've gotten when we posted the topic on LinkedIn was huge. So today we're going to talk about LMSs. And then I think we will ask Lori and Steve to stay with us to do the best and the worst as well, maybe even about LMSs. So, <laughs> so Will, can you introduce our guests and, and then uh, give us a little preview of why you felt LMSs would be a, a wonderful topic for us. Uh, sure. So, uh, Lori Niles Hoffman. Lori, you're a senior learning strategist with over 20 years of L&D experience across many industries, including international banking, management consulting, and marketing. One of your specializations is large-scale digital learning transformations. Uh, and what you do is help companies navigate through the complexities involved, and you act as a trusted advisor to chief learning officers around the world. And Steve Foreman, uh, you have over 35 years of L&D experience. Um, and as we talked earlier, much to your chagrin. <laughs> uh, and uh, you're the author of the LMS Guidebook, which uh, ATD put out last year. Uh, your model for the learning and performance ecosystem has been adopted by many large companies and government agencies. Your work uh, focuses on the application of technology to support human performance with a special emphasis on learning strategy, learning technology architecture, and learning data and metrics. Um, we are thrilled and delighted to have found uh, both of you, and uh, we want to talk about LMSs. Uh, because, well, I guess our listeners told us this is really important. And Matt and I have been around the industry for a long time. And we have heard about LMSs. People want to talk about their LMS all the time, mostly with sort of negative uh, repercussions or negative uh, thoughts on them. So let me start with my naive definition of what an LMS is. And uh, Lori and Steve, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but an LMS which means learning management system is a repository and organizing structure for our courses and other learning assets and designed hopefully to get these learning assets to learners and record their activities. So Lori, let me start with a question for you. Yes. How did we get here? <laughs> what, <laughs> what forces initiated the LMS era? Can I call right. it that LMS era? And where are we today? So oh, that's a big question. The history of LMS is actually, ahead. Will, that's like 10 questions. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll do my best. I'll do my best on this. So um, as I understood it, I mean, there were different, different points where, you know, LMS came out, but really where I saw it personally taking traction and where, when I was asking this question of some of my, some of my colleagues as well, uh, it came during um, the financial crisis in the, in the early 2000s, and, and there was the, the Sarbane-Oxley's Act. What this was meant to do, SOX, 
you know, for uh, is with a shorthand for it. What this was meant to do was to hold evil financial people accountable. And as a result, they had to make sure they all did their training. So there, as part of that act, there was this training that was implemented. And banks in particular, large organizations, I mean, they can be, you know, 200,000 people needed to track that people were doing anti-money laundering training, or they were doing their code of conduct and, 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 and a lot of entrepreneurial people decided, hey, we can help with a system to make sure you're not tracking it just on an Excel spreadsheet. And thus, the LMS came to fruition. Now that was just one example. I know there were other pockets where the LMS did fill a niche, but this was one of one of the big ones. So the long and the short of it is we can blame bankers for the LMS. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's interesting when uh, when we looked at the comments on our LinkedIn post earlier, we asked about, uh, you know, what, what do you think about LMSs? What should we talk about? Um, one of the comments was, well, you know, the LMS, what it does for us is sort of create this organization so we can keep track of things. Right. Um, so that seems to be consistent. Uh, it does. It does what it says on the package, really. And, and, and that's why you do see the shift from the LMS to what the cool kids call the LXP. And we can go into that in, in a bit. But it, it, it really was designed to do that, the LMS. What it didn't do, though, was think really about the learning experience from when it was initially designed. And I think that's why a lot of people get frustrated with it. Laurie, can I clarify that? Sure. My experience is, uh, at least in the early days, mm-hmm. was they didn't actually claim to be learning, uh, learn, pu- to push out learning. They claim to organize learning Correct. and send people to the course and be able to identify who completed the course based Correct. on whatever requirements were, were present. Absolutely correct. It was, and that's why I mean when I say it does what it says on the box. It manages learning. That, right. but it's, but it's, it, it's strictly from from that from that side. But and it's morphed. Exactly. It's morphed um, in some wonderful ways and some 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 pretty uh, hor- horrific ways too. Um, but uh, and Ooh. that's where you see the birth of the the LXP or what some people uh, talk about, um, like the EdTech stack or the dreaded ed tech ecosystem um, because they realize that your core system, the LMS, doesn't do everything you need it to do. So you end up plugging in a whole bunch of things to get a Medusa. Great. Oh, that's great. I, actually, I want to bring Steve in here. Steve, yes. um, Lori's hinted at these other things that are sort of in the LMS or the learning technology ecosystem. Um, can you sort of cover some of those for us and what, what they're doing and why they're important? Sure, yeah. What I'm finding in the industry is that more and more organizations are deploying multiple systems where the learning management system used to be the learning technology, along with authoring tools to create content. Uh, And now we're at a place where uh, organizations are deploying a stack of learning technologies that are integrated and work together. And and each of those technologies supports a different kind of specialty, specialty area. But even within the LMS uh, genre, there are different types of LMSs that all call themselves an LMS, but often have very different features. So in academia, there are systems called LMSs that are actually virtual classrooms that augment or replace the physical classroom. In the corporate world, there are the LMSs, uh, such such as those Laurie referred to, which are, are about delivering and tracking training. 
to employees mostly, sometimes to customers or what they call the extended enterprise suppliers and, and distributors and so on. And then there are some LMSs that also have built-in learning content management and authoring tools to help developers uh, with building content. So, so there are different types of products, and, and when, when uh, organizations are looking for an LMS, they need to kind of sort that out, make sure they're not uh, looking at apples and oranges together in the same bucket. Um, but then there are many other technologies. There are learning content management systems that are dedicated for, you know, supporting the de development of training and uh, kind of a, a library where you can check things in and out and, and set up workflows around content development. There are learning experience platforms such as, uh, you know, like, like Lori mentioned earlier, that uh, are really about uh, personalizing the learning experience and aggregating content from multiple repositories and, and providing kind of a curation mechanism that allows you to tag content and so on uh, and, and contextualize it. There are micro learning platforms that uh, deliver short video presentations and, and some of them also handle spaced testing uh, for reinforcement. Um, there are conference management systems for handling large events uh, and then there there are knowledge bases, performance support systems, social networking collaboration systems, uh, expertise location management systems. More and more, we're seeing artificial intelligence crop up in the world of learning with uh, chatbots and intelligent coaching systems and predictive analytics that make recommendations to people. Uh, and, and finally, there are niche markets for even within the LMS world that uh, some, some that support aviation, some that support early learning uh, professionals, some that support people who sell courses, uh, some that are dedicated to firefighters and law enforcement. Uh, there are MOOCs, you know, for doing massive open online education and platforms for that, language learning platforms and, and compliance platforms, platforms for medical education and for professional associations that do certifications and designations. So there, there's just a, a lot of stuff going on and uh, it can be overwhelming for the consumer. Well, as you were talking about it, I was feeling completely overwhelmed. And I guess one of the takeaways here, if somebody says, uh, if somebody uses the word LMS, we need to find out what the hell they mean because it could be different. We're not talking about the same thing. That's absolutely right. Wow. And, and if, you, if um, you look at the research done by Red Thread, if you ever see, they did a survey of companies and they said on average, I think the number was, I'm going to say 12 or 14 different technologies in that ecosystem, in addition to their LMS, was on average what companies had. Wow. Wow. Red Thread does great stuff. Yeah, they do. Really good stuff. Well, let's have, there, have there been any studies or either academically or practically that look at whether there's an impact on the quality of learning? <laughs> Well, um, I do know of somebody right now who's actually doing their, their PhD on this, in particular looking at the impact to contingent workers. Um, but I've not seen anything, and, and I'd, be, I'd be curious to, to hear if, if there is anything, because ultimately that study would probably not be self-serving, shall we say, for, <laughs> for the industry as a whole. <laughs> so I think it's, it's important to... to understand that the the management systems for for delivering and distributing learning products 
that uh, the quality of the, the you know it's really about the user experience and having a clear path to action and 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 being able to find things easily and so on but that's not the learning the learning is the content that people plug into these systems and so the effect when we get into the effectiveness of learning we really have to look at the content not the delivery platform and steve i want to differentiate uh, uh because uh uh, for me, content is the the words, the resources, the job aids, the tools, the videos, the podcasts, and so forth. I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you're talking about the content including activities uh, as well as the materials I just listed as a, a combination. It's the, the content of the learning package. Is that what you're referring to, not just the job aids and resources? Absolutely. It's, it's, when I say content, it's the design, it's the instructional design. Okay. And, and, uh, and you know, the, the performance (laughs) context and how, how well all that stuff matches up. Great. And aren't there, there, there must, the tech seems to be catching up in some ways to allow us to do more around a good instructional design, but what are some of the, and this is to either of you, what are some of the limitations, uh, inherent, uh, in these systems that can cause us not to be able to produce the best instructional designs. Uh, I can I can start on that. Or sorry, Will, go ahead. Well, I, you know, I just we need to we we've now learned that we need to focus that question because there's all these different. Yeah, that's true. Um, systems. That's true. Uh, so, what can can you clarify? <laughs> you know what let me let me let me suggest yeah, take focus, let me suggest we focus first on the standard lms the sort of the repository thing and then we'll come back to the specifics great idea so, yeah is that okay with everybody yeah sure. that works okay so um so let's start with the complaints that we hear about the standard lms what what are some of the things that you guys hear out there <laughs> or what do you see that you think are just not are problematic? I mean, your, your standard LMS, like the old school LMS, or we're, we're going back in the day, and a lot of organizations do still have them. And I won't name name names because uh, that's I don't I don't like to name and shame. Um, but you know, these common complaints are it's not learner centric. It's impossible to find what you need. The the the, the tagging it doesn't have a a, a a very good search engine on it. So you have to know basically everything from the course number to you know whatever. It only searches titles. It doesn't search within the content. You know, um, it's uh, it's 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 clunky. It's it's it just doesn't. It's not a consumer grade experience. Um, we hear on that from an administration uh, standpoint. And again, I'm talking about old school LMS is not some of the other products, but usually, you know, the, the amount of data that you can extract from it is quite limited. It's just your SCORM package, tracking completion test scores. Um, so you're not getting a lot of, you're getting just basic data, nothing that's meaningful that you can act upon. Um, those are some of the, 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 the barriers that, 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 that I, that I hear. Um, Steve? Yeah, um, I agree with all that. And I did a, a research report with the eLearning Guild a while back and, and asked about the top three most uh, important features in an LMS and also about what are some of the most common complaints about the LMS. And what's interesting is the top three features were also the top three complaints. <laughs> no. And that, that was the, the, the user experience. And, and by that, 
I mean the user interface for learners and also for administrators. So sometimes uh, an LMS might do a, a good job with learners, but not with administrators or vice versa. So those are, those are two different audiences that use the system very differently and have different needs and they uh, need to be addressed well. Search was the second one. Um, and and uh, most LMSs use a database search, which you, you have to spell things exactly correctly and use the right case and so on. And so they don't, they're not up to the standards that everyone's used to with, you know, internet searches and, and near indexes and, 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 you know, did you mean this and, and you know, handling uh, context better. And then reports was the third one. And, and that one, I think, you know, people have a lot of difficulty with some of the canned reports and the data in general that an LMS tracks. But I, I think, um, you know, the many LMSs have done a lot of work to try to improve these in these three areas and, and things are getting slowly better. I think there's something underneath all of this uh, that leads to dissatisfaction and that is that the LMS supports a learning model that we all feel like we're familiar with. You know, we all grew up going to school and we all had courses and we all, you know, uh, uh, had tests and things like this. So, so when, when we look at corporate learning organizations, um, they're often staffed with people who don't have necessarily instructional expertise, but have, you know, but have maybe content expertise or are just kind of uh, able to work with systems and, and develop content and so on. And, and, and we all kind of default to this learning model where you, you deliver a course, you take a course, you take a test, you complete the course, you complete a survey, you're done. And uh, this is something that, you know, I hate courses. I, I, I haven't taken a course probably in 30 years. Um, I, I learn in a different way, and I think most people do. They, everyone has their own ways of learning, and the LMS doesn't support those, those models. So uh, it, it's kind of a funny, a funny beast. It's, it's more, uh, there's more ownership in the learning organization around delivering content that way than there is in the consuming uh, groups that consume that content. I, I'd add to that, Steve, is it, you're spot on, absolutely right. And what I find more and more is a lot of the, even the, the supporting tech or the things that you find within the, the ecosystem um, or your ed tech stack, when you really peel back the layers of the vendors who are developing that, they're not coming from an L&D background. They're designing something that will sell. That's right. And they've never worked in an L&D function. They've never, they, they just don't know anything about the, the industry or the, any of the science behind it, any of that. They're, 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 they're building a piece of technology. But we get hired all the time from LMS companies to help them re, uh, review their structures for instructional design purposes. And then we often are told, ah, well, we can't, we can't do it that way. And we'll say, but that's a requirement if you want people to retain information. Well, we can't do it this way. Well, that's a requirement if you want people to be able to make decisions later. And, well, that's not going to let us uh, adhere to SCORM 2.0. So, sorry. And by the time we're done, both they and us are very frustrated. Hmm. Um, and there seems to be this constant battle between instructional design and software development. And, I think uh, I think there's a third party in there too, which are the yeah. con consumers of the content. And um, 
you know, if we could do everything in, in a way that was scientifically, you know, uh, uh, proven and so on, um, we might reach some people, but there are many people who also, you know, don't, don't feel like they have time or mind share or time share to, to spend on learning. So there, there's this nexus be, uh, between the consumers of the learning and, and their culture and their role and, and the time they have allocated for, for developing them, themselves professionally. And there is the instructional viewpoint, which is, you know, science, I, hopefully science-based and, and uh, working towards effective learning and performance solutions. And then there, there's the, you know, the, the systems providers and, and the or, learning organizations that just kind of, they're out there to get their job done and, and upskill people and, and uh, you know, they're doing it the best way they know how. I think that's a really, really valid point. Um, one of the things we run into a lot is people will tell us, the, the administrators will tell us, this activity or this uh, video or this content you want them to go through, that's too long. Can you cut it down to a six-minute six duration? And we'll say, no, it, it, it takes more time. You can't, you can't cut it. Well, then let's cut the whole thing because yeah. no, no one's going to do it. And our response is one of relevance. That if, if we build something that's actually relevant and interesting to the end user, then there is value for them to take the time and go through it. But if they're pushing back and saying, this is too long, we've, we've totally missed the ball on that relevance or interest component. Well, you know, and that gets to the fact that we don't have good feedback loops in our yeah, industry. Yeah. You know, if we, if we had a good way to measure whether we're really being effective, in helping people learn, remember, and act, uh, then we wouldn't have those conversations. We say, "What? What do you want to do? You know, this is the cost. This is the benefit. You know, then let's have that conversation." But instead, we just cut stuff out. Can we get specific on a few uh, learning factors and talk about whether the LMS does that? So, for example, we know from the science of learning that um, if you give people realistic practice retrieval practice, uh, if you set things in context that are realistic, if you space repetitions over time, um, that that's really valuable in supporting people in learning and remembering. So I wonder, does a standard LMS enable that? Does it allow it? Does it squelch it? Well, I mean, from, from, from my standpoint, you could, you could jerry-rig it to do some of that, but you'd have to really know your, 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 your stuff, and it's really not, it's really not intuitive. Um, I mean, there, I have a whole wish list of, of things that I would, I, would, I would like to see that, that would actually enable that. I mean, even the, the more sophisticated LXPs or the ones that are using AI, they can, they're still just supporting content. They're not really letting you put it in. Yeah, you can build a pathway, but there's no nudging behind it. There's no uh, responsiveness to it. It's still very much so a, you know, do this, then do this, then do this. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a, 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 lot of, a lot of barriers. But again, I, I would also say too, the average L&D professional, and, and I, we can debate this, in order to do all the things that, that you're talking about there, there actually needs to be an upskilling of that person who really has been trained to do the LMS and to design for that environment. 
so so that's also too where the shift needs to happen and then it gets back to the chicken and the egg why the vendor will not design to that um because they know that there's not necessarily market or an appetite because ah. it's a fundamental huge shift for an l d team and this is a challenge that we have a lot of times with our clients you know they go in they want to buy the ed tech stack they want to you know do do all these things that's you're buying a race car and you don't know how to change a gear and so that is also too probably one of the one of the bigger barriers. That's profound. I I never thought of it that hey, way. Can I record you saying that so I can play sure. it for my husband? You you actually <laughs> you Just actually did record us. <laughs> it, it is recorded. <laughs> but but Lori, I do have a I do have to warn you. Both Will and I have faces for radio. Oh, so no. you know, and you're not going to really want any video of this. So. I'll take it. Don't worry. <laughs> no, but that, that, that really is profound because I, I think you're, you're dead on. Some of the teams we work with that are in-house teams, mm-hmm. their instructional design capabilities, yeah. I, I don't want to accuse them and say they're lacking, but they're certainly not cutting edge or as uh, aware of the learning science and what needs to be done to really get to that transformation of learning. And, and so I never thought of it that the vendors who are building these systems, they're not selling to me. They're not selling to you or Will. They're selling to these in-house folks who have the money. Exactly. Well, Spot on. Yeah. There's, I mean, they're doing sort of a, a design thinking approach, right? They're going to their audience and they're saying, hey, what do you, you know, what's working for you? And because that audience is not skilled up on some of the science of learning stuff, they're not asking for it. And so it sort of creates this downward spiral, or at least not an upward spiral. And I, and I do want to have have some, sorry, I do want to have some sympathy though too for that 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 you know learning experience designer, whatever the cool kids are calling them these days, because we've put so much pressure on them. Okay, you're no longer an order taker. You need to be a performance consultant. Oh, oh, and by the way, you're no longer designing courses. We need you to do a rapid authoring tool. Oh. And XAPI, you need to know how to do that. So there's coding involved in that and an evaluation strategy, all for, you know, a pretty paltry salary. And it is really tough out there for them. Well, and that begs the question, Steve, who are our buyers? So so with an LMS in an organization, it's not even often the L&D team, right? It's often finance or procurement. Yeah, well, if you look at at the the history of LMSs and – you know, the, they started kind of as learning management systems. And then many of the leading LMS companies uh, started adding to their product line and getting into talent management. And what they decided, I think, my interpretation is that the market in the U.S. became kind of saturated with LMSs. And they they said, how are we going to build more customers. And so they kind of said, well, we're selling to the learning organization. And in many organizations, learning reports to HR. So let's sell to a higher level executive in the company. Let's sell to the VP of HR and uh, let's sell talent management. So, so often HR is driving LMS decisions. Uh, some, sometimes IT is involved. Um, uh, and, but typically it is the learning organization that's the customer. And, and of course you've got all these niche markets where professional associations are buying LMSs for, for their needs and, and so on. But, uh, you know, I, I think what's interesting about the technology is that the technology does provide guidance to people on what they can and can't do in developing content. 
Um, it's just the nature of the beast that people may use an LMS and say, well, this is what the LMS does, so this is what I'm going to develop. Um, there are, as we move forward um, in the, you know, over time, and we're not relying solely on the LMS, we're, we're building a stack of systems that work together. Uh, we're still kind of in a transition phase around this, so it's not, it's not a hundred uh, percent there yet. But, but organizations and and developers, I think, are becoming more savvy about using other technologies and using technologies in combination and using a platform rather than a system. A platform being a combination of systems and uh, and develop and kind of starting to develop things that are a little bit more out of the box. So I think the capabilities. Are, are growing and I think people's skill sets are becoming more sophisticated, uh, but it is, uh, you know, we're, we're in the early stages of that transition right now. Wow. So let's, let's then talk about some of these, uh, I was gonna call them add-ons, but these different systems that are um, not LMSs per se, but they're slightly different. So what, what about like the micro learning platforms? What do they do? What are they good at? Um, what are they not doing so well? Yeah, so micro learning is, um, you know, short bursts of information, often in video format, but not always. And there are some micro learning platforms that uh, also have spaced uh, retention features. So for example, you might uh, watch a short video that gives you a bunch of information, and then uh, you may get a couple questions to answer after you kind of consume that information. And then a few days later, you might get some questions pushed to your mobile phone that uh, asks you one or two questions about what you learned in, in that video a few days ago. And then, you know, uh, a couple days later again and so on. So, so there are some micro learning systems that support spaced reinforcement, others that don't. Um, but it, it is an interesting model. It, it's really about convenience and, uh, you know, keeping things short and succinct so that you're not taking too much time away from people's productivity. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, platform, I think. Yeah, and it, it really, you know, we used to have this event model of learning, right? We're going to go to a training event. We're going to take an e-learning course. They're, they're an event. We go to them, and then we're done with them. And sort of the spaced repetition or uh, subscription learning, as I've called it in the past, um, and enables us to sort of have touch points over time. And in some ways, that's how we learn. I, I don't think we're there yet in figuring out how to uh, do that. We're sort of in the pioneering phase, but uh, there's a lot of opportunity there. I agree. Uh, yeah. You know, I, 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 you know, some of the problems I've seen are, or I've heard from the vendors are, well, you know, you know, uh, there's sort of micro learning fatigue, right? If you're constantly, you know, if someone takes like five learning experiences and they're getting all these little nuggets all the time. It's like, <laughs> I can't do my job. That's just one of the issues. And, I think that's the wrong, looking at it from the wrong angle. I think what microlearning is really all about is, is you go and find something that when you need it, because, because you need it right now and you need it quickly. And, and so you go find it. It's not about, you know, prescribing learning to people and assigning learning to people. It's, it's about people going and, and finding things like, like we do on YouTube when we want to, uh, you know, learn to do something we've never done before. Well, so I'm, 
Well, ahead, let, me, let, let me push back about that a little bit. I, I you know, certainly that's sort of the just-in-time learning, but um, uh, we don't always know what we need to know. And so sometimes we need more of, more of a, a longer ramp up, a, a deeper learning experience. So I, I see opportunities for both of those. Um, <laughs> fight I, back, I, am I wrong? I, no, I agree with that, but I, I don't think micro learning is about deep, deep learning. I, I think micro learning is about just getting a quick answer uh, in general. Um, and, and if people are getting fatigue from micro learning, then maybe it's being deployed in a way that's got the wrong set of expectations for learners. Mm, okay. So my challenge with micro learning is that people don't always, our clients don't always understand when to use it and when not to use it. And so we will get requests to develop a micro learning package. And when we push why, we end up uh, uncovering that they're not clear why. It's just the thing to do. Or that people, quote, unquote, have no tolerance anymore for longer training, even if it's the required duration to achieve those objectives. And so a lot of what we're doing nowadays is educating our clients in a passive way so we don't offend them about what these different techniques are. And the big thing we're running into with LMSs now is a lot of our clients don't actually even start with why they want an LMS. So Steve, you know how you were sharing all the different types of LMSs that are out there and all the different uh, segments in the, the space. I don't even think many of our clients at least know that there are that many options, let alone why they might want a traditional LMS. And so how, if I'm, if I'm a client, if I'm a buyer of an LMS, and what are the things I would start with as I start to process through this? What questions should I ask myself? How, how should I think about this, assuming I don't really know anything? So I'll start just very quickly with one thing you shouldn't do, because I think it's the one thing that people do right away, is they download some report or see something from an analyst that is, these are the top 50 or top 100 LMSs out there. And I, I hesitate on that because there is no number one LMS. You need to understand your organization. And it's like saying, what are the, what's the best pair of jeans? Okay, would you want Joe's. it for comfort? It's Joe's. <laughs> Joe's <laughs> jeans are the best. There you go. There you go. But, you know, I mean, are you looking for comfort, for style, for durability? It, it, that's, it's the same thing. And I would also, I, I'm contentious. Some people are receiving funding for providing their analysis services, shall we say. And, or they sit on some of the boards of said companies. So I think that there's caution there. I really do. And, and I know this is, it's uncomfortable to hear, but Lori, it is true. are you saying there's corruption in the learning field? We are such a noble profession. How I could know, that be? I know, I get, I'm, 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 I'm dropping a truth bomb here. It, it is, it's, so, so it is buyer beware. And I think that there have been, people been very opportunistic about the fact that it is a very saturated and cluttered market and so you need to be careful the places that I recommend companies to start looking at is to start uncovering what is the digital body language of their audiences and that's not a term I developed it's done by it's a marketing term by Steve Woods but is how people are already behaving online talk to IT find out 
who launched an app and did it work? Um, how many mobile devices does your organization have? What are people doing online? What pages are they going to? That's just one piece and start to understand what's going to work in your organization. Understand the culture of the organization. Understand what are realistic goals and then start to piece back. So rather than doing a list of features that you, you want, you're going to need to test those. It's not what you want. It is what it, the, your, your audience can bear and what's technically possible. Get IT involved at the very beginning and, and then go from there. That's a very, there's so many other things, but I, I could go on and on, but that, those are just places I wanted to start. Steve? Yeah, I can't, I can't agree with that anymore. That's, that's, uh, I see people, so many organizations, so, you know, they're looking at the Gartner Group's magic quadrants and they're, and they're saying, well, this, you know, we're looking at these three LMSs because they're in the top quadrant. But, uh, you know, often they're looking at an academic LMS next to a corporate LMS and they don't even realize these are two different types of products. Um, my my whole thing really about LMS evaluation and selection is to start by letting your strategy drive your technology decisions and not the other way around. Sometimes I ask an organization, what's your learning strategy? And they say, we don't have one. Or they say, our strategy is to buy an LMS. We're going to get an LMS, you know, and that's not a strategy. So, so understanding what you're trying to, what the strategic drivers of your or larger organization are and how those impact learning understanding your operational environment, how you operate and, and what's practical and what your constraints are and so on. And then understanding, I, I, I like what you said, Lori, about uh, understanding learner body language or employee body language, because you really look, at, I, I call this an environmental scan to really understand the culture and, and the appetite for technology and for learning uh, approaches and so on. And, and let those drive your requirements and capture your requirements. And I don't mean like a, a spreadsheet of 300 items. I mean like maybe 20 or 30 high-level requirements um, that you really need from your learning management system or whatever technology you're looking at. And then the, really the next step is to, there are hundreds of products on the market. So how do you vet those products and come up with a short list of products that that are most likely to meet your requirements. Um, what I like to do is take, there are some, some of the requirements that you come up with can be used as vetting criteria. So for example, if you need your LMS to integrate with Salesforce, or, or if you need a multi-language LMS, or if you need e-commerce in your LMS, you know, these are things that set products apart from other products. So, you know, defining some vetting requirements and then doing some research on the web and, and uh, looking around and seeing what's out there that meets your vetting criteria. And then there are some due diligence. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a way of going about evaluating systems. And um, you can get a lot of help from IT on this because they do this all the time. But I, I always like to kind of capture the requirements and ask a set of maybe three to five questions about each requirement that gets at not just do you, do you meet or not meet the requirement, but gets at how do you meet the requirement? How does the system work? How do you do this? And, and, uh, and send out an RFI, a request for information to your handful of vendors or your dozen vendors that you're looking at. And that's a, a first step and then down select from there. Then, then uh, do some, define some use cases, maybe a dozen use cases, some typical use cases that you that you need supported and some kind of corner cases, things that you have to do periodically that are 
uh, but but not a lot, and that are a little bit more complex. And ask the, uh, some of your vendor finalists to come in and demonstrate their systems performing your use cases. And then, you know, check with their existing customers, get some referrals, um, have set up some technical discussions. If you need to integrate your LMS with other platforms, get, you know, get your technology people with their technology people to talk about that. And then ultimately send out an RFP. And so I think many organizations, they, they want to move too fast. They don't, they don't know what's involved. So they think we're going to implement an LMS next month, you know, or in two months. And, to, you know, there are situations where you can implement an LMS in two months, but there are other situations where it takes up to a year to implement an LMS. Um, so, you, you know, it's, it's a matter of kind of getting smart about how you're going about deciding what you need, focusing on what you're looking at and how to go about evaluating things. Could, could so, I also add an, add one thing to that, Steve? Sure, of course. Um, one thing that we find where things fall apart is never underestimate the, the partnership element. Um, so yes, the technical are there um, is, is important. You have to make sure everything functions technically. Um, but what is their customer maturity model? What is their, their support that's going to be there on day two? Um, are they going to love you and leave you? Don't always listen to the referrals of their clients that they put in front of you. Um, talk to ones, find their head of learning uh, of, you know, they'll give you the logo parade, go on LinkedIn, find that head of learning that they didn't mention and, and find out the truth. Look to see if there's any pending litigation. Sorry, I'm saying it, but it's, it's a good thing to have a look for. Um, Glassdoor, um, you'll find out a lot about how buggy that platform is when you start looking through some of those reviews that you wouldn't necessarily see on some of the other review platforms. Um, yeah, uh, but that partnership is also, I, I've seen platforms where maybe they didn't tick every box technically. I mean, but they, they took all, they, they ticked all the ones for um, mission critical, but they were such good partners that they were the far better choice because they knew they were going to support them through. And, and we, we've had our clients pick those instead. Yeah, wow. that's a good so that's a great point. Um, when sometimes you can get a demo version or a sandbox version that you can play with for a while too. But uh, what I've found is that sales team, you have a, you're dealing with the sales team from the vendor, and then at the point at which you sell, sell sign the contract, you get moved to the implementation team, and now the salespeople are gone. And so every all the agreements and understanding and that you had built over time with the sales team often doesn't get transferred to the implementation teams. It's almost like you're starting all over again. And then you start getting the reality of, they said you could do that, you can't do that, you know, and that type of thing. So, so you have to be careful. And talking to customer, to existing customers is key. And even if you're talking, you know, I like the idea of, of researching and finding customers they didn't refer you to, but even those that they did refer you to, um, you can ask questions like, what were the most difficult challenges you had during implementation? What, what, how is customer, what kind of responsiveness are you getting to, you know, when you call up with problems? And, you know, have you, have you done any, asked for any new features and, and how have they responded to that? And things like that. So you can really get a sense of, of what you're getting into. Is there, is there a way to... Um 
you guys are talking about this problem where you you know you're in the you're in the investigative phase you're talking to the salespeople you're doing all your due diligence but then at some point you throw this over the wall to the actual implementation um, and that's really the important part you know do you have partners who can work with you does the system work as you thought it would is it easy to use etc is there a way that you can pilot that you know you can sort of jump the wall temporarily to see how things are really going to work or do you really have to do um, that good research beforehand I, I would always ask for a pilot if you're doing a major if you're major investment and I, I would be concerned about any company that 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 balked at that they may want you to put forward you know a, a small amount and I think that's that's absolutely agreeable you know because you you need they want you to have some skin in the game so to speak um, but you know and to Steve's point if there's a sandbox version you can use um, you, you want you really want to be sure you, you, you test drive and in that test drive I would be looking for data I would be putting it out to actual users who are going to be you know your 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 end learners and gathering all the the, the data on their usage and finding out what worked and didn't work yeah, it's, uh, it's easier to do this with systems where you're not replacing an existing system, but you're deploying something brand new. Um, it's easier to do pilots on those types of systems. When you're replacing an existing system, often this is what's happening with an LMS. People are deploying their third or fourth or fifth LMS. And so they've, um, they've got to migrate all their content and their data from the old LMS to the new LMS. And, and there, there's a, a lot of investment of time and effort and pain and, and, and drudgery <laughs> related to that. So, so often organizations, you know, they say we're going we're gonna to have an escape clause in our contract or we're going to pilot this for three months and then decide whether we're going to keep it and so on. But they've, they're investing so much in deploying it that it becomes really painful not to keep using it. So um, there are there are techniques for, I mean, I, I like what you said earlier, Laurie, about uh, kind of customer maturity. And I, I like to also think in terms of process maturity. So yes. asking customer, asking vendors about how they handle, do they have trouble ticket tracking systems? Do they, how do they handle deployments? How often do they put out new releases and, and minor releases? Mm -hmm. um, what kind of quality control do they have? How do they respond to customer requests? Um, asking questions to, to see if they have really good uh, formalized processes in place can, can be a good clue as to, to whether they're going to be a good vendor to work with. Excellent point, Steve. Wholeheartedly agree. You know, you mentioned, Steve, that uh, an organization might be on their fourth or fifth implementation of a new LMS. Uh, what, what's, the, what's the shelf life of an LMS? If I buy a new LMS today, how long should I expect it to last? Well, I, I don't have any real data around that, but in my experience working with customers for many, many years with LMS deployments, uh, the average lifespan that I tend to see is about five years uh, for an LMS. And often, you get multi-year discounts from your contract if you sign up for three years. And sometimes organizations want to replace the LMS after three years. Sometimes they sign up for another year or two. And, but uh, often organizations change LMSs because A, they're tired of their existing vendor or their existing system, or they've had so many complaints and they're tired of hearing about it. B, they think there's something out there that's going to be better than what they have, which is often true. Uh, C, 
they've got a new leader of the organization who used to have, you know, have a different LMS product in their organization. And they're saying, let's try that here. Um, you know, so there are all kinds of reasons, but, uh, Typically, I think organizations, they're ready to change after about five years or so. What's funny is that the people involved in deploying or implementing the LMS may no longer be there. So you may go through an, a new LMS implementation once or twice in your career or never. Um, so this is why I think working with vendors, uh, third-party vendors who can help you um, with your processes and advocate for your needs and, and help you uh, kind of make decisions about system configuration and implementation um, when you don't have the hindsight yet because you're not familiar with the system to make these decisions. It's good to work with vendors who can help you um, in that way because, you know, this is something you don't often do and it's something you don't want to make a career out of necessarily, but, but it's, it's good to have someone who can really help you and advocate for you. Yeah. You guys, you guys have scared me enough that if I was going to hire a new LMS, I would want to hire somebody like you, Laura, or you, Steve, to take me through the process because it'll look like all these traps you could get into. And I want to go back to something you guys said about requirements. And Laura, you talked about uh, taking a uh, digital, uh, wasn't body count, what was the word you used? <laughs> <laughs> digital body language. <laughs> digital body How many people language. have died under your LMS? <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, you talked about environmental scanning. And, you know, when we think of requirements, you know, we might think about, well, will this system connect to Salesforce? Will it connect to this? Will it work for what you're trying to do? But, it, but my worry, or I'm, I guess I wonder whether we should be worried about what are the, we might focus on sort of some of the technical things, but maybe not the learning features that we're looking for. And I've, I got to think that every organization should think about some learning things, some learning features that, that ought to be in there. So I'm wondering, is that true? And if so, what are those learning features that every, uh, you, know, or, or, you know, learning unit should be concerned about? So from my perspective, yeah, I think I, I, that it was a, that was an obvious one, I guess, I, I didn't address. And you are absolutely right. You have to think of what the, the learning is going to be and and making sure that it it, 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 it is going to deliver on, on learning. It's not just going to be a you know, toy that people go to. Um, there are some features that I personally like. I mean, I think, you know, the ability to, to host resources uh, in, in, in addition to courses is just a table stakes, but some do not do that or not do it well. Um, but I think that that's, that's critical. The ability to do uh, paced learning, we've talked a lot about that, but again, they're not doing it in quite the way that I'd like to see them do it. I'd like to see more responsive campaigns, but at least it gets you, it gets you to that. Um, the data piece to me is quite important because in order for us to get that that closed loop reporting to understand what is actually having impact and what is not um, needs to be there. And often those systems are very disparate. So, uh, but that, that would be, those would be some of the, the key ones. And then also two things we haven't talked about, like accessibility standards. Does it meet those? Um, you know, is it, you know, can it multi-language, all those like moving some of those just basic barriers um, are, are, are quite, quite critical. Hmm. Steve, can you add to that? Yeah. I, you know, I think it's really, it's an interesting question because, uh, again, I, I think if you focus on what you're trying to accomplish strategically and how learning supports your organizational strategy 
and what type of learning best meets the needs of, of your audience. It's really, you're, you're not thinking LMS at that point. You're thinking about how you're developing your content and, and how you're going to, how you're going to, and, and your instruction and so on. And, um, Sometimes if you're doing things that are innovative or things that are science-based or things that are, uh, you know, kind of advanced, uh, you're not thinking about an LMS. You're using other systems to deploy. So I think you're really getting into a learning technology stack at that point. Yes. If you're thinking about LMS, you're typically thinking about courses. You're thinking about, you may be thinking about instructor-led or event-based courses that happen at physical location. And, and what the LMS is going to do for you is it's going to manage wait lists, it's going to manage faculty and, and locations and handle self-registration and all that stuff. If, if you're deploying uh, e-learning, then your LMS has, a, a, you know, it needs to support SCORM or, or some of the interoperability standards. CMI5 is the new one. Um, and, and that's a way to deploy your course to the LMS and for the LMS to talk to the course and in a kind of client server way and, and, and get data, store data from the course and bookmark where you left off and all that stuff. And, and then you may be doing webinars, so you want to look if, to see if your LMS uh, supports, has out-of-the-box integrations with some of the leading webinar tools or the ones that you're using um, so that the the sync the schedules and the and the attendance tracking and are are synced um so so you really want to look at what are you trying to accomplish and what how does the product meet those needs i i don't i don't really subscribe to the the idea that everybody needs to look for something in an lms that uh you know i, I think it's more um, every organization is different. Every, every organization has its own skill set and its own focus in terms of how it's handling learning. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's about, it's about finding the best technology that matches the way you work or ideally helps you innovate. Well, but we, we know that we don't want just to send out content to people. We don't want it to be static. We want to have some interactivity. We want to have some realistic practice. We want to uh, have, you know, for some types of learning situations, we want to have it a campaign over time. I mean, these things, these features seem to be, um, you know, a requirement for everybody. You ought to have this capability, I think. Uh, maybe I'm too much of an idealist. Yeah, see, see those, I agree with that, but those are not LMS features. Okay, so let's. What what is the stack then that we need to ask for? What are the well, that, that's that's really content. It's really how you design your content. You can use all kinds of tools to design content, um, but the uh, the ultimately the the content efficacy and um, effectiveness really comes from your design and and whether it's meeting the needs of your learners and and in the context of and relevant to them. Um, so all of that stuff is content. It's not distribu distribution system oriented. So do I, should every organization look for a, um, a space repetition platform, a, a micro learning platform, a learning experience platform, a learning content management system. What, what, what do we need in our stack? I think every organization needs to look for talented designers Thank who, you. who think out of the box and, and who know what they want um, to do and, and then find the right technology to do it. Hey, on that note, 
can we uh, ask you both to give a final statement on LMSs as we're running to our close in time? Sure. Go ahead, Lori. Oh, okay. I'll go. Um, well, well, and before, before you do this, one of the things you might consider incorporating into that is, you know, what sort of an ideal uh, LMS or LMS stack um, might include. So, you know, what, what is, you know, and, and you know, I, I don't want to focus your final answer, but I guess I do. But, you know, <laughs> well, I'll like, do it anyway. <laughs> well, I'm gonna do it. This won't be part of the recording, but make your yeah. final statement this. <laughs> well, well, no. Yes, but, it will, Will. <laughs> what, what, are the, what are the worries, right? But also, what, what sort of the vision, you know, what would you like to see? Anyway, say whatever you like. But that's <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, I'll go for it then. Um, okay, the final statement's on the LMS. Look, you do need to, you need to be tr you need to be tracking. This is this is this is the way of the world, especially if you're in a compliance-based environment. Um, but do look to the things that you can have functioning around it, and think of uh, you know as we said before, what is actually going to be good good learning. And I I, I applaud what Steve said earlier about hiring good designers because that's that's the most important thing. You wanted to look at the things that I think you need as as table stakes in your in your ecosystem. Um, I'd rather not mention mention products per se. I'm just going to say say functionality, but you because I don't want to. I don't like doing endorsements that way. Um, but you definitely need to have something to that you know is doing the self-paced learning or you know structured paced learning, a campaign type functionality, which really doesn't exist in the way as I said I'd like to see it. So you may even want to use your marketing automation tool to do that, which would be really cool. Um, a robust uh, data collection. XAPI can be really difficult, and I have my thoughts there, but some way that you are getting, a, a, and there's different ways to do it, but that you, you are getting um, intelligent data that you can react with um, and be proactive about. Um, and then I also think, too, you you need to be also thinking about your, your wider system about resource management if you're doing in class and, and, and whatnot and how those pieces are going to fit in together. Those are some of my main ones, but again, specific to the organization and, and to the and to the, the, the people that you serve and the technology that's available. Great. Thanks. Yeah, that, that's great. Great uh, comment. Um, yeah, I, I think in terms of a learning and performance ecosystem, and I, I think there are, in, in my view, I, I've been thinking about this for a long time and, and working with organizations on this stuff for a long time, and I've kind of identified six areas or components that support learning and performance. One being structured learning. And, and that's the kind of learning that most organizations crank out, and that's what LMSs support. And it's also what micro-learning, adaptive learning, virtual reality, simulations, games, all those things are ways of developing structured learning programs. Another approach that supports performance is social networking and collaboration, where you have communities, networks, crowdsourcing, and so on. Um, a third area is performance support, where you have... Um, diagnostic tools, decision-making tools, calculators, task-based uh, guidance, and so on, process guidance. Um, a, a fourth area is access to experts, leveraging the expertise in your organization so that people can consult with experts and, 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 uh, and, and get quick answers or, or uh, preparation for things they need to do. Knowledge bases where you can just look up information that you need in the moment of need. And then talent management, 
Um, and, and people think of that as an HR thing, but I think it relates to training, especially when you get into uh, people's development, professional development plans and, and competency-based self-assessments and things that help people develop their careers and develop themselves professionally and, and improve in their current role or prepare for a new role. So I think if you think in terms of those six areas or those six ways of supporting performance and you build a stack of technologies that supports those ways, and, and this can be done over time, not all at once, but uh, you, know, you keep adding components and thinking about what you want to do, develop a solution, deploy some more technology, and you look back over your shoulder and you say, wow, two years down the road, you look back and say, wow, we've developed a pretty good ecosystem for doing a lot of different things that we want to do uh, with learning and performance. Uh, I think that's kind of um, the, the approach that I'm seeing more and more organizations taking. That's great. Thank you, Steve. Yeah. And I want to thank both of you for joining us today. This has been incredibly educational for me. Um, and, uh, and I've learned a lot just listening to both of you and, and, uh, and I look forward to following you guys uh, in, in your writings and what else you do. Uh, and hopefully you'll come back on the show. Would love to. And thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. So, pleasure. Oh, yeah. And uh, you, I'm going to come to you guys with my learning technology questions. <laughs> <laughs> Would you both like to stay for our, our closing segment, which is the best and the worst of the week? Would love to. Sure. Here's what it is. Will and I, uh, each time we, we record a show, uh, we close with a very quick, here's what we've experienced, seen, observed, or had happen to someone else, the best. Something in learning, in general, anything. And then also, what was the worst? So my best actually has to do with LMSs. So a client I will not name, uh, but I wish I could, uh, shared with me a month ago that they wanted to go out and find an LMS. And after one month, they shared with me that they have postponed that search because they're not ready and that they're going to take an entire year. This whole year will be focused on pretty much outlining all the things you shared with us they should be doing. And they've come up with a plan, but they have postponed buying this, even though it's in their 2020 budget. Nice. Yes, I was very happy for that. Uh, I'm raising a toast to them, a virtual toast. Very well done. <laughs> My worst was a CFO has nixed a training activity to learn some core competencies around company execution of strategy because he felt the activity was both uh, superfluous and did not enable the experts to share the information more readily as a lecture. And so he felt that they should have 20 to 30 minutes each. And there are six of them to lecture folks rather than do interactive approaches. And when asked, what do you hope that these folks will be able to do differently as a result of your program? He said, I want them to remember everything. So. <laughs> okay. So, Will, do you want to go next? So I, we'll I will go it. next. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break with tradition, and I'm not going to have a worst. I just couldn't. Nothing really got me upset this week. So, <laughs> I apologize for that. Um, 
the best, though, uh, I was talking to uh, Jerry Hamburg of Tier One, and he talked about how he and his colleagues there are thinking about uh, supporting people in performance. Uh, and I think he used the word uh, performance design. And, you know, basically the idea was, oh, we have to go beyond training, go beyond the course, go beyond the curriculum. And he was thinking about it really specifically in terms of how do we set up contexts that nudge or push or drive better performance. And uh, he talked about routines and rituals and uh, other things. And it made me think about this book that I'm reading uh, by Wendy Wood on good habits and bad habits, which I highly recommend. She's brilliant. Um, she's a researcher in the, you know, focusing on habits. And I really think there's a lot of opportunity for us in the learning space to go there and think about how to set up context. And we hear about informal learning and on-the-job learning, but we don't really have all that many mechanisms. Uh, and some of the mechanisms are so transactional, like knowledge management systems or you know, things like that, that, you know, not really the way things work. So I think this is a real opportunity. So that was my best. Great. Lori, you want to go next? Yeah, I'm, um, I have to give a shout out to Matt Ash at MediaZoo who sent this to me. Um, and it's, it's um, called, it's a game called Can You Beat the Privacy Chicken? <laughs> Bear with me. Um, <laughs> and it's featured on, on the New York Times today. And it is, I, I, I've often had my, my thoughts about gamification, you know, because your top performers are, funnily enough, never on your leaderboards. Um, but anyway, this really puts into context understanding when you give your data, what happens to it. But it does it in such a, a, a funny, amusing way, but it's, it's, it's also a real-time learning piece. And I, I was, I, I first sight, I'll admit, I rolled my eyes because it looks like one of those old-school video games that, you know, you used to, you used to play. Um, but it is, it's really intelligently done. And, and I thought, you know, we can do more things like that. Um, I, 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 it, it just was, and, and it, it doesn't look like it was a really expensive thing to do. It just was, it was very, very well done. And can you name cool. the title of that again? We'll put it in yeah, our liner notes, but. Yeah, if you uh, Google, can you defeat the privacy chicken? Okay, thank you. Yeah. It wins on cool name. I think it wins on, on name alone. Um, but uh, yeah, do, do take a few minutes to, 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 to play it? Because I think there's just some really intelligent design, design there. Great. Did you, you have a worst? You have a worst? Yeah, the, the worst is I've seen a, a plethora of, of, of articles, you know, usually vendors, and all of them are talking about how much engagement they have on their platform. And I'm all about, you do need to understand engagement, like are people actually logging in and, and what they're doing? But that's, they're positioning it as the end all be all. And that is frightening to me. Um, and, I, and I think it's, 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 doing a dis, it's doing a disservice. Um, and yet those metrics are being gobbled up. Um, so, so that's... A, that's something that, that I'm thinking is kind of ugly this week. Oh, I think that is that should be one of our shows just alone on how people are misappropriating the word engagement. Yes. I agree. It's, it's, it's been misused on so many levels, motivationally, psychologically, pedagogically, yeah. and technically. Yes, yeah. absolutely. That'll be a very engaging show. Mm -hmm. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> I see how what about, you did there. <laughs> how about you, Steve? 
Okay. Well, uh, the best. I, I it just recently in the last few weeks, I've been I've been working with a medical education provider. So <laughs> physicians and and nurse practitioners and and uh, you know physician assistants and all kinds of people clinicians have to take so many continuing medical education have to earn credits uh, every year to to keep their their licensing. And uh, in working with this organization, you know, they have some formal structured learning programs, but they also have a lot of stuff that's a little bit out of the box. And and some of the stuff that I saw were um, they have correspondents who attend some of the major medical conferences all around the world and and then uh, provide uh, work with work with expert clinicians, um, you know, who have an expert reputation in their field uh, on doing some analysis of the different presentations in the conference and and distilling that down and 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 synthesizing it and, and presenting it to people and i think in a very efficient way i thought that was pretty cool and they also have some interactive uh guidance tools that were designed by experts um, that help nurse practitioners and physician assistants uh, go out and meet with um, uh, patients and uh, helps them kind of ask the right questions to diagnose and treat and uh, compares the questions they're asking with uh, the schooled questions that they should be asking and kind of gives them some feedback in that way. And I thought that was, that was pretty cool. So, uh, you know, some good good examples in terms of the worst, uh, I worked with, (laughs) this is a funny one. I worked with an organization that, that deployed an LMS and because the LMS tracks stuff, and people have to register for things, and then they, and then it tracks whether they actually registered and 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 received or were had access to the right information. They decided to manage all their corporate communications in the LMS. So, no. so so they started creating course numbers um, for each corporate communication so that they can track who actually opened, <laughs> registered for the course to get the communication. And I thought that was crazy because now their catalog is just full. And when people search, it's full of all this old communication <laughs> stuff. It's just nuts. And the sad part is just what that does to the end user to know that's being tracked is now they could have done it. They could have just used a marketing automation system. It would have told them if it was open or not. But that's right. Yeah, impressive. There are lots of ways they could have done that. Yeah, yeah. impressive. So that brings us to another ending for Truth and Learning. So thanks again to Steve and Lori. We will have all of their contact information and all the links to everything they shared with us in our episode notes. Will, do you have any closing statements before we say goodbye? I'm just grateful that we could have uh, two real uh, experts with us on LMSs. Um, I know. I feel like we're less of a fraud having both <laughs> yeah, of them know, on finally. the show, right? I know, right? <laughs> so, well, thank you both, and thank we you. hope to see you soon. Take care. For sure. Thank you. Okay. Thank Bye-bye. you, guys. Yep.